Section three of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fifteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fifteen, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Section three. Emboldened by this great victory the Tories made an attempt to push forward the indemnity bill, which had lain many weeks neglected on the table. But the Whigs, notwithstanding their recent defeat, were still the majority of the House, and many members, who had shrunk from the unpopularity which they would have incurred by supporting the Chacheverell Clause and the Howard Clause, were perfectly willing to assist in retarding the general pardon. They still propounded their favourite dilemma. How, they asked, was it possible to defend this project of amnesty without condemning the Revolution? Could it be contended that crimes which had been grave enough to justify resistance had not been grave enough to deserve punishment? And if those crimes were of such magnitude that they could justly be visited on the sovereign whom the Constitution had exempted from responsibility, on what principle was immunity to be granted to his advisers and tools, who were beyond all doubt responsible? One facetious member put this argument in a singular form. He contrived to place in the Speaker's chair a paper which, when examined, appeared to be a bill of indemnity for King James, with a sneering preamble about the mercy which had, since the Revolution, been extended to more heinous offenders, and about the indulgence due to a king, who, in oppressing his people, had only acted after the fashion of all kings. On the same day on which this mock bill of indemnity disturbed the gravity of the commons, it was moved that the House should go into committee on the real bill. The Whigs threw the motion out by a hundred and ninety-three votes to a hundred and fifty-six. They then proceeded to resolve that a bill of pains and penalties against delinquents should be forthwith brought in, and engrafted on the bill of indemnity. A few hours later a vote passed that showed more clearly than anything that had yet taken place how little chance there was that the public mind would be speedily quieted by an amnesty. Few persons stood higher in the estimation of the Tory party than Sir Robert Sawyer. He was a man of ample fortune and aristocratical connections, of orthodox opinions and regular life, an able and experienced lawyer, a well-read scholar, and in spite of a little pomposity, a good speaker. He had been attorney-general at the time of the detection of the Rye House plot. He had been employed for the Crown in the prosecutions which followed, and he had conducted those prosecutions with an eagerness which would, in our time, be called cruelty by all parties, but which in his own time, and to his own party, seemed to be merely laudable zeal. His friends indeed asserted that he was conscientious even to scrupulosity in matters of life and death, but this is an eulogy which persons who bring the feelings of the nineteenth century to the study of the state trials of the seventeenth century will have some difficulty in understanding. The best excuse which can be made for this part of his life is that the stain of innocent blood was common to him with almost all the eminent public men of those evil days. When we blame him for prosecuting Russell, we must not forget that Russell had prosecuted Stafford. Great as Sawyer's offences were, he had made great atonement for them. He had stood up manfully against popery and despotism. He had, in the very presence chamber, positively refused to draw warrants in contravention of Acts of Parliament. He had resigned his lucrative office rather than appear in Westminster Hall as the champion of the dispensing power. He had been the leading counsel for the seven bishops, and he had, on the day of their trial, done his duty ably, honestly, and fearlessly. He was therefore a favourite with high churchmen, and might be thought to have fairly earned his pardon from the Whigs. 
but the Whigs were not in a pardoning mood, and Sawyer was now called to account for his conduct in the case of Sir Thomas Armstrong. If Armstrong was not belied, he was in deep in the worst secrets of the Rye House plot, and was one of those who undertook to slay the two royal brothers. When the conspiracy was discovered, he fled to the continent and was outlawed. The magistrates of Leyden were induced by a bribe to deliver him up. He was hurried on board of an English ship, carried to London, and brought before the king's bench. Sawyer moved the court to award execution on the outlawry. Armstrong represented that a year had not elapsed since he had been outlawed, and that by an act passed in the reign of Edward the Sixth, an outlaw who yielded himself within the year was entitled to plead not guilty, and to put himself on his country. To this it was answered that Armstrong had not yielded himself, that he had been dragged to the bar a prisoner, and that he had no right to claim a privilege which was evidently meant to be given only to persons who voluntarily rendered themselves up to public justice. Jeffreys and the other judges unanimously overruled Armstrong's objection, and granted the award of execution. Then followed one of the most terrible of the many terrible scenes which, in those times, disgraced our courts. The daughter of the unhappy man was at his side. "'My lord,' she cried out, "'you will not murder my father. This is murdering a man.' "'How now?' roared the Chief Justice. "'Who is this woman? Take her, Marshal, take her away.' She was forced out, crying as she went, "'God's almighty judgments light on you. God Almighty's judgment,' said Jeffreys, "'will light on traitors.' thank God I am clamor-proof. When she was gone, her father again insisted on what he conceived to be his right. I ask, he said, only the benefit of the law. And by the grace of God you shall have it, said the judge. Mr. Sheriff, see that execution be done on Friday next. There is the benefit of the law for you. On the following Friday, Armstrong was hanged, drawn, and quartered, and his head was placed over Westminster Hall. The insolence and cruelty of Jeffreys excites, even at the distance of so many years, an indignation which makes it difficult to be just to him. Yet a perfectly dispassionate inquirer may perhaps think it by no means clear that the award of execution was illegal. There was no precedent, and the words of the act of Edward the Sixth may, without any straining, be construed as the court construed them. Indeed, had the penalty been only fine or imprisonment, nobody would have seen anything reprehensible in the proceeding. But to send a man to the gallows as a traitor, without confronting him with his accusers, without hearing his defence, solely because a timidity which is perfectly compatible with innocence has impelled him to hide himself, is surely a violation, if not of any written law, yet of those great principles to which all laws ought to conform. The case was brought before the House of Commons. The orphan daughter of Armstrong came to the bar to demand vengeance, and a warm debate followed. Sawyer was fiercely attacked and strenuously defended. The Tories declared that he appeared to them to have done only what, as counsel for the crown he was bound to do, and to have discharged his duty to God, to the king, and to the prisoner. If the award was legal, nobody was to blame, and if the award was illegal, the blame lay not with the attorney-general, but with the judges. There would be an end of all liberty of speech at the bar, if an advocate was to be punished for making a strictly regular application to a court, and for arguing that certain words in a statute were to be understood in a certain sense, the Whigs called Sawyer murderer, bloodhound, hangman. If the liberty of speech claimed by advocates meant the liberty of haranguing men to death, it was high time that the nation should rise up and exterminate the whole race of lawyers. Things will never be well done, said one orator, till some of that profession be made examples. No crime to demand execution, exclaimed John Hampton. 
we shall be told next that it was no crime in the Jews to cry out, Crucify him. A wise and just man would probably have been of opinion that this was not a case for severity. Sawyer's conduct might have been, to a certain extent, culpable, but if an act of indemnity was to be passed at all, it was to be passed for the benefit of persons whose conduct had been culpable. The question was not whether he was guiltless, but whether his guilt was of so peculiarly black a dye that he ought, notwithstanding all his sacrifices and services, to be excluded by name from the mercy which was to be granted to many thousands of offenders. This question, calm and impartial judges, would probably have decided in his favor. It was, however, resolved that he should be accepted from the indemnity, and expelled from the house. On the morrow the bill of indemnity, now transformed into a bill of pains and penalties, was again discussed. The Whigs consented to refer it to a committee of the whole house, but proposed to instruct the committee to begin its labors by making out a list of the offenders who were to be prescribed. The Tories moved the previous question. The house divided, and the Whigs carried their point by a hundred and ninety votes to a hundred and seventy-three. The king watched these events with painful anxiety. He was weary of his crown. He had tried to do justice to both the contending parties, but the justice would satisfy neither. The Tories hated him for protecting the dissenters. The Whigs hated him for protecting the Tories. The amnesties seemed to be more remote than when, ten months before, he first recommended it from the throne. The last campaign in Ireland had been disastrous. It might well be that the next campaign would be more disastrous still. The malpractices, which had done more than the exhalations of the marshes of Dundalk to destroy the efficiency of the English troops, were likely to be as monstrous as ever. Every part of the administration was thoroughly disorganized, and the people were surprised and angry because a foreigner, newly come among them, imperfectly acquainted with them, and constantly thwarted by them, had not in a year put the whole machine of government to rights. Most of his ministers, instead of assisting him, were trying to get up addresses and impeachments against each other. Yet if he employed his own countrymen, on whose fidelity and attachments he could rely, a general cry of rage was set up by all the English factions. The knavery of the English commissariat had destroyed an army, yet a rumor that he intended to employ an able, experienced, and trusty commissary from Holland had excited general discontent. The king felt that he could not, while thus situated, render any service to that great cause to which his whole soul was devoted. Already the glory which he had won by conducting to a successful issue the most important enterprise of that age was becoming dim. Even his friends had begun to doubt whether he really possessed all that sagacity and energy which had a few months before exhorted the unwilling admiration of his enemies. But he would endure his splendid slavery no longer. He would return to his native country. He would content himself with being the first citizen of a commonwealth to which the name of Orange was dear. As such, he might still be foremost among those who were banded together in defense of the liberties of Europe. As for the turbulent and ungrateful islanders, who detested him because he would not let them tear each other in pieces, Mary must try what she could do with them. She was born on their soil, she spoke their language. She did not dislike some parts of their liturgy, which they fancied to be essential, and which to him seemed at best harmless. If she had little knowledge of politics and war, she had what might be more useful, feminine grace and tact, a sweet temper, a smile and a kind word for everybody. She might be able to compose the disputes which distracted the state and the church. Holland, under his government, and England, under hers, might act cordially together against the common enemy. He secretly ordered preparations to be made for his voyage. Having done this, he called together a few of his chief counsellors, 
and told them his purpose. A squadron, he said, was ready to convoy him to his country. He had done with them. He hoped that the queen would be more successful. The ministers were thunderstruck. For once all quarrels were suspended. The Tory Carmarthen on one side, the Whig Shrewsbury on the other, expostulated and implored with a pathetic vehemence rare in the conferences of statesmen. Many tears were shed. At length the king was induced to give up, at least for the present, his design of abdicating the government. But he announced another design which he was fully determined not to give up. Since he was still to remain at the head of the English administration, he would go himself to Ireland. He would try whether the whole royal authority strenuously exerted on the spot, where the fate of the empire was to be decided, would suffice to prevent peculation and to maintain discipline. That he had seriously meditated a retreat to Holland long continued to be a secret, not only to the multitude but even to the Queen. That he had resolved to take the command of his army in Ireland was soon rumoured all over London. It was known that his camp furniture was making, and that Sir Christopher Wren was busied in constructing a house of wood which was to travel about, packed in two wagons, and to be set up wherever His Majesty might fix his quarters. The Whigs raised a violent outcry against the whole scheme. Not knowing, or affecting not to know, that it had been formed by William and by William alone, and that none of his ministers had dared to advise him to encounter the Irish swords and the Irish atmosphere, the whole party confidently affirmed that it had been suggested by some traitor in the cabinet, by some Tory who hated the revolution, and all that had sprung from the revolution. Would any true friend have advised his majesty, infirm in health as he was, to expose himself, not only to the dangers of war, but to the malignity of a climate which had recently been fatal to thousands of men much stronger than himself? In private the king sneered bitterly at this anxiety for his safety. It was merely, in his judgment, the anxiety which a hard master feels lest his slaves should become unfit for their drudgery. The Whigs, he wrote to Portland, were afraid to lose their tool before they had done their work. As to their friendship, he added, you know what it is worth. His resolution, he told his friend, was unalterably fixed. Everything was at stake, and go he must, even though Parliament should present an address imploring him to stay. He soon learned that such an address would be immediately moved in both houses, and supported by the whole strength of the Whig party. This intelligence satisfied him that it was time to take a decisive step. He would not disregard the Whigs, but he would give them a lesson of which they stood much in need he would break the chain in which they imagined that they had him fast. He would not let them have the exclusive possession of power. He would not let them persecute the vanquished party. In their despite, he would grant an amnesty to his people. In their despite, he would take the command of his army in Ireland. He arranged his plan with characteristic prudence, firmness, and secrecy. A single Englishman it was necessary to trust, for William was not sufficiently master of our language to address the houses from the throne in his own words, and on very important occasions his practice was to write his speech in French, and to employ a translator. It is certain that to one person, and to one only, the king confided the momentous resolution which he had taken, and it can hardly be doubted that this person was Carmarthen. On the 27th of January, Black Rod knocked at the door of the Commons. The Speaker and the members repaired to the House of Lords. The king was on the throne. He gave his assent to the supply bill, thanked the Houses for it, announced his intention of going to Ireland, and prorogued the Parliament. None could doubt that a dissolution would speedily follow. As the concluding words, I have thought it convenient now to put an end to this session, were uttered, the Tories, both above and below the bar, broke forth into a shout of joy. 
The king, meanwhile, surveyed his audience from the throne with that bright eagle eye which nothing escaped. He might be pardoned if he felt some little vindictive pleasure in annoying those who had cruelly annoyed him. I saw, he wrote to Portland the next day, faces an L long. I saw some of those men change color with vexation twenty times while I was speaking. End of section 3